Hi, I'm Harry, and welcome to episode two of my podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. As an A-level student, diving into the depths of history, it's become increasingly fascinating to unravel the events that have sculpted our world. In this series, we're delving into historical milestones, from the harsh realities of Stalinism in the Soviet Union to the intricacies of the Salvadoran Civil War, and much more. But today, our focus is on the transition of Russia from a communist republic to an independent country. We will explore the tumultuous end to the Soviet Union, the birth of the Russian state, and its troubled beginning under the leadership of Boris Yeltsin. Stay tuned to hear all about it. On December the 25th, 1991, the iconic Soviet hammer and sickle flag was lowered over the Kremlin, marking the end of an era. In its place, the Russian tricolour proudly unfurled, symbolising the birth of the independent Russian state. Earlier that day, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as the president of the Soviet Union, paving the way for Boris Yeltsin to assume the role of president in the newly formed nation. But how did it come to this? The Soviet Union had been disintegrating for some time already, but it was the coup against Mikhail Gorbachev, the last president of the Soviet Union, that served as the final nail in the coffin for the empire. At 4.50pm on Sunday, August the 18th, 1991, four men, including Gorbachev's chief of staff, Valery Bolden, appeared at Gorbachev's Dacha in Crimea, demanding Gorbachev sign a document declaring a state of emergency and transfer his power over to his vice president, Gennady Yanayev. Gorbachev refused, and he and his family were placed under house arrest by General Igor Maltsev. The scheduling of a new Union Treaty signing on August 20th, which would have diminished central authority over the republics, seemed to provide an explanation for the timing of the coup. At a little past 6am Moscow time on August 19th, Radio Moscow announced that Gorbachev was unable to perform his duties due to ill health. In line with Article 127-7 of the Soviet Constitution, Yanayev had taken on the responsibilities of the presidency. On the 20th of August, Boris Yeltsin issued a presidential decree declaring his assumption of command over all military, KGB and other forces within Russian territory. During that evening, clashes erupted between the military forces and protesters in the vicinity of the Russian White House, resulting in the death of three demonstrators. The coup leader's orders were evidently not being obeyed, as the expected assault on the White House did not materialise. On the 21st of August, the Communist Party Secretariat demanded a meeting between Yanayev and Gorbachev, and the coup collapsed. 
the reluctance of army and KGB officers to carry out orders to storm the Russian White House, as well as the failure to arrest Yeltsin before he reached the White House, meant that the coup failed. On the 22nd of August, Gorbachev and his family returned to Moscow. The failure of the coup, which aimed at halting Gorbachev's reforms, marked the end of Soviet communism. Yet the influence of the Communist Party had been diminishing since the start of Gorbachev's reform initiatives in 1985. The collapse of the coup underscored this decline, highlighting the diminished significance of the once powerful Soviet apparatus. Boris Yeltsin initially gained prominence in 1985 as a supporter of Gorbachev, but he became discontented with the slow pace of reform and eventually found himself marginalised in the political arena. However, during his brief tenure as the mayor of Moscow, Yeltsin gathered widespread acclaim for championing political and economic freedom. With Gorbachev's introduction of democratic elections for the Soviet parliament, Yeltsin made a comeback, securing overwhelming support from a Moscow constituency in 1989. The following year, despite Gorbachev's objections, he was elected president of Russia, promptly advocating for increased autonomy for the Russian Republic. In anticipation of the approval of Gorbachev's Union Treaty, Yeltsin embarked on establishing an executive presidential system, aiming to govern independently of parliament and the hierarchies of the Communist Party. Boris Yeltsin aimed to correct what he viewed as Gorbachev's critical mistake of not establishing an executive framework to execute the decisions of the Soviet Union. Yeltsin's executive authority was supported by four key elements, the State Council, the Council of Ministers, the Council of the Federation and Territories, and the Security Council. Notably, the State Council shared its name with the highest consultative body in Russia before 1917, a deliberate effort to create a sense of continuity with pre-communist Russia. On the 7th of November, the announcement of Yeltsin's new team reflected a shift in approach. Taking inspiration from the United States, where the head of state and head of government roles are consolidated, Yeltsin planned to serve as both president and prime minister. In a cautious move influenced by Gorbachev's experience, Yeltsin intended to personally oversee the defence and interior ministries, as well as the KGB. Furthermore, Efforts were underway to streamline the bureaucracy, reducing the number of ministries to only 20, along with three state committees and a state security committee. This marked a significant reduction from the over 100 ministries that existed in the former Soviet Union. Following the failed coup, the Republic swiftly asserted their independence. In an unsuccessful attempt to retain authority, the Communist Party of Belarus took the lead by declaring independence on August the 25th, just 72 hours after Gorbachev's return to Moscow. On August the 27th, Moldova's parliament and Grand National Assembly declared independence and initiated the process of succession from the Union. In September, all three Baltic states officially left the Soviet Union, gaining admission to the United Nations as independent nations, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Georgia and Armenia pursued independent paths, while Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan assumed control of their republic's resources and initiated economic reform 
and privatization. The other Central Asian republics generally leaned towards supporting continued union, but lacked the economic and political influence of their neighbors. In November, seven republics, including Russia, decided to create a union of sovereign states, but it didn't materialize. On the 1st of December, Ukraine voted for independence. A week later, representatives from Belarus, Russia and Ukraine met in Belarus, declaring the end of the Soviet Union. They established the Commonwealth of Independent States, with Minsk as its administrative center. On the 19th of December, Boris Yeltsin directed the Russian government to take over all the responsibilities of the Soviet government, excluding defense and nuclear energy production. Two days later, the presidents of 11 out of the remaining 12 republics convened in Kazakhstan to sign the foundational documents of the Commonwealth of Independent States. The only remaining step was for Gorbachev to retire with as much grace as possible. On the 25th of December, 1991, Gorbachev announced his resignation as the president of the Soviet Union for a televised address. Less than 30 minutes later, at 7.32pm, the Soviet hammer and sickle flag was lowered from the Kremlin for the last time. In its place, the pre-revolutionary red, white and blue tricolour of Russia was raised. Russia assumed the USSR's permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council, and all Soviet embassies transitioned into Russian embassies. The Soviet Union continued to exist in name only for six days, officially dissolving at midnight on the 31st of December, 1991. Now Russia was an independent state, with Boris Yeltsin as president. Unlike Gorbachev, Yeltsin was willing to listen to the most radical economic reformers, and he was willing to accept putting the Russian economy on the market. But one of the first issues that struck the reformers was, how do you privatise an economy of this size? Russian reformers had the Polish strategy of shock therapy in mind. It was carried out successfully in Poland. Shock therapy in economics refers to a set of policies designed to be implemented simultaneously to promote economic liberalisation. These measures encompass the deregulation of prices, privatisation, trade liberalisation and the application of stringent monetary and fiscal policies for stabilisation. For post-communist nations, shock therapy is employed to facilitate the shift from a command state-planned economy to a market-orientated one. However, many Russians, unlike the Polish, disapproved of the idea of private property, and there was widespread skepticism in Russia about capitalism. But to the reformers, privatization would have to be carried out in order to improve the struggling Russian economy. But the transition to privatization for Russia was to prove difficult and riddled with corruption. Yeltsin knew that there would be hardship. He predicted that six months of hardship would ensue, but he promised, if we enter on this path today, we will have concrete results by the fall of 1992. The consequences of shock therapy, however, proved to be worse than expected. Food prices rose 400% in a month, inflation rose 2,500%, 
and real wages failed to keep up with the cost of living. Unemployment, which was a rare occurrence in the Soviet period, swelled, while the social safety net guaranteeing basic access to healthcare, education, and pensions for the elderly evaporated as efforts to eliminate budget deficits depleted social spending, leaving many Russians nostalgic for the Soviet past. Hyperinflation decimated people's savings, and companies struggled to pay their workers. The economic decline strained Russian patience, and instability bred, giving fodder to shock therapy's political opponents. Communist and nationalist forces in Parliament accused Yeltsin of secret collaboration with the West. Shock therapy and the prolonged depression it brought magnified instability in Russian politics and society. Economic reforms also helped the dreaded oligarchs cement their power. The presence of Mercedes in Moscow's streets contrasted sharply with beggars searching for food in garbage dumpsters, illustrating the emergence of oligarchs and social stratification in post-communist Russia. Businessmen, beginning in the late perestroika period and continuing through the independence period, were able to purchase key Russian industries before they reached market prices. Russian businessmen made huge fortunes quickly by gaining control of energy, banking, and natural resource companies. Another tactic of the oligarchs was buying up huge volumes of domestic Russian oil at a very cheap price and selling it on the foreign markets, making a fortune. Some factory owners took the incentive to convert their workers' salaries into dollars and then convert it back into rubles a month later, for example, then pay their workers, but make a lot of money in the process. This was thanks to the astronomical monthly inflation. The privatization plan was designed to disperse ownership amongst the Russian population. Russians were incentivized to buy shares in newly privatized industries by distributing privatization vouchers, each valued at 10,000 rubles. However, the voucher system accomplished little in stimulating economic growth. Many vouchers were sold to foreign investors, while suspicion about the declining value of the ruble and distrust in the stock market kept investment in Russian industries slow. Wealthy Russians preferred to invest outside of Russia in the more stable markets of Western Europe, while the massive profits generated by oligarchs were sheltered in foreign banks. However, nearly 80% of medium and large state enterprises were privatized by 1994. Moreover, the planners of shock therapy aimed to integrate small businesses into Russia's market economy, and their efforts were successful, as over 100,000 enterprises were privatized by 1994. Throughout the period of shock therapy, there was an enormous drop in production and standard of living. Per capita income dropped to a half, and people experienced genuine economic misery. Apartments were privatized, criminal bands forced people to sell apartments for nothing, and people were forced to live on the streets. Life expectancy for Russian males declined from 63, which was already low by world standards, to 58 by the end of the decade, largely due to an increase in drinking. Ultimately, Boris Yeltsin was a transformative figure. If it weren't for him, Russia might still today 
be ruled by the Soviet Communist Party. But Yeltsin left many issues in Russian society for Putin to deal with when he took the presidency at the turn of the century. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Yeltsin and the reform-oriented elites in Russia aimed for political modernization by adopting Western-style political structures. This transformation involved the introduction of democratic elements such as participatory elections, the establishment of a presidential office, and the adoption of a constitution influenced by pre-revolutionary Russian politics and the United States. Yeltsin's Russia was a bold project, a 180-degree turn from the norm. But that turn hurt the population far greater than expected. With rapid inflation and the rise of gangs of enforcers, many began to wonder if abandoning communism was really the way forward. Thank you so much for listening to episode two of my podcast. I hope that what I have learned in my research and findings has an impact on you. There is more to come in the next few weeks, so please do stay tuned.